Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take out for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give me meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And down at verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Father God, we pray as we look into your holy, inspired, inerrant word that uh, your spirit would take the word, quicken it to our hearts, mix it with faith, and help us uh, to be transformed by it. We desire to be pleasing in your sight. We recognize our own human weaknesses. We just pray that by your spirit, you would uh, cause us more and more to be conformed to the image of your dear son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the passage I just read could be a description of many sons of and children of pastors that I know. In fact, it could be a description of a number of homeschoolers I know. I know several uh, who I really consider to be exactly like Eli. Uh, They are people who love the Lord. They have visions for the good things that uh, God will do in their children's lives, even name their children in ways that indicate they have hopes for their children, and they are bitterly, bitterly disappointed that their children have turned out just like Hophni and Phinehas, the evil sons of Eli. And uh, I was not surprised in some of these situations that their children turned out the way that they did, but they were definitely blindsided by it, even though they were warned about it a number of times. Uh, they did not see it coming at all. Now, we have a tendency to put all of the blame on Hophni and Phineas, uh, but it's interesting that God puts at least some of the guilt and some of the blame upon Eli in uh, chapter 2 as well as in uh, chapter 3. For example, if you look at chapter 3, verse 13, uh, you'll see that God is wondering why Eli did not restrain his children. Uh, There could have been at least the restraint uh, when they get older, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, that it uh, requires for rebellious uh, juvenile delinquents. If he couldn't control his children, he could at least hand them over to the state. Uh, But I want to spend just a little bit of uh, time, just a couple of minutes, looking at how serious things had gotten in Eli's family. 
Uh, we're going to read a, a, a lengthy section a little bit later on, uh, but I want to just touch on some highlights. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 12, says that his sons were corrupt. Now, the literal Hebrew is that they were sons of Belial, and that's a, a reference to unbelievers. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 says, What accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And the parallelism there, and there are some other scriptures, seem to indicate that Belial is Satan, and uh, a son of Belial would be an unbeliever. So it makes sense that verse 12 also says that they did not know God. Now, they obviously knew about God because they're priests, right? They're ministering in His name. They're doing all kinds of things for Him. They're teaching from the Bible. But they did not know God. There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And it's clear that um, Eli had never reached his children's hearts with the gospel. In verses 13 through 15, we see that the children were self-indulgent. Now, that's not something that just happens when you're an adult. It's something that is a, a learned uh, behavior. Uh, the word custom uh, in that verses, it was the priest's custom, indicates this is something that had been going on for a long, long time, and it gives us a hint that this self-indulgence began at a very young age. These kinds of things and patterns develop young. And by the way, when parents tell me that they... Uh, they don't think that they can homeschool. I tell them, what do you mean? You've been homeschooling for the last few years from the time that your kid was a baby. You've been training that baby and you've been training your toddler. Don't tell me you can't homeschool. You might need to improve your homeschooling. Yeah, I can agree with that. But everybody uh, does some uh, homeschooling. And when you indulge your baby or your toddler 100% of the time, when they want to be picked up, you're teaching your child that it is the center of the universe and that self-indulgence is the norm. And so right from babyhood and on, you can be teaching your children patience and trust in your timing and self-control, and there's all kinds of virtues. Now, you need to be hugging them as well, and you do need to be picking up and, and loving on them because you want to teach them generosity. You want to teach them love. You want to teach them all of the graces that God has uh, given to us, but certainly sin can at least be restrained. Now, these verses also show theft. Abuse of office, lawlessness, bullying. Now take a look at verses 13 through 14. <clears throat> it says, And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flush hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites uh, who came there. Now this was robbing from the people what was rightfully theirs. The, the priests were not supposed to be taking the portion that belonged to the people. They were given the breast and the, the right uh, thigh, and uh, the rest was offered to the Lord or was eaten by the worshiper. So they were taking more than their fair share. Take a look at verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take the boiled meat from you, but raw. Now this was wrong on three counts. First of all, they were not supposed to eat the fat at all. Uh, Exodus 3, Exodus 7, uh, excuse me, Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7, and Exodus 29 all say the, uh, the fat was 100% 
supposed to be devoted to the Lord. They weren't supposed to eat it. Now, second, they weren't supposed to take what was being sacrificed. And then third, they weren't uh, supposed to take anything for themselves until after the sacrifice had been done. Otherwise, it just completely ruins the, the symbolism that was there. Uh, so their ecclesiology was totally messed up. They weren't looking to the Word of God for how they ruled the church. Look at verse 16. And if a man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, no, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. So there's no accountability of these people financially or socially. They did their own thing, and if you didn't like it, they basically said you could lump it. Uh, verse 17, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So things are exceedingly bad. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So it was fornication, and I won't keep reading. I think you get the point uh, here. But verse 25 indicates things had gotten so bad that God wanted to kill them. That's just an amazing statement there. God wanted to kill them. To put things mildly, things were a mess in that family. Okay, so I think I've demonstrated from the Scripture, Hophni and Phinehas are to blame. God puts blame upon them. Not, they can't excuse their behavior just because Eli has not restrained them. That's what God says in the next chapter. You have not restrained your sons. But they're fully to blame. They could have uh, made their own uh, choices despite what their father has done. They could have listened to Eli's uh, rebuke, but they did not. Uh, and so they do have blame in this whole uh, situation. And I wanted to point that out because you're going to be thinking otherwise. It's not fair what I'm going to be saying about Eli. Uh, uh, they have their own decisions and they cannot pawn it off on on Eli. But I'm not preaching about uh, the sons this morning. I'm preaching about Eli and his failure. And you might initially wonder how Eli could have allowed things to get that bad. When we're outside looking in, it's astonishing. It's just like, how in the world could anybody allow that uh, to happen? But I would hasten to say that it's not as if he agreed with his children. It's clear that he wanted them to be different but he had no stomach for discipline. Oh yeah, he blew up. Uh, he chewed out his kids, just like uh, modern parents sometimes will scream and yell at their uh, children. Uh, but like King David, he did not restrain his children. And I bring up King David because a lot of times he's given a free pass and Eli's criticized. And I don't think that's fair because I don't think David was any different than Eli. Uh, we've already read in past sermon, 1 Kings 1 says of David's son, Adonijah, his father had not rebuked him at any time. And we pointed out that the literal Hebrew is he had not brought pain to him at any time. Uh, he got angry at his kids from time to time, but he did not restrain them. And that's one of the, the big criticisms in chapter 3 of this uh, chapter. God says that he had not restrained his children. Um, when we looked at... Uh, Amnon's rape of Tamar. David gets really ticked off, very angry, but he did not restrain Amnon. Uh, and so Amnon remained a menace, and so did Absalom. And so I, I'm bringing this up to point out that uh, Eli is not alone on this problem. In fact, there's quite a number 
uh, of people in the historical books that have exactly the same problem that, that he did. Uh, you've got uh, people like uh, Gideon and, um, and uh, uh, Abdon. And uh, there's just a, a number of people in the historical books who were willing to lay down their lives for God. And they were even willing to take on any kind of a giant in the battlefield, but they couldn't take on their own children. It's just a, a repeated problem uh, down through history. And uh, these are listed in Hebrews 11 as heroes of the faith. Now my point uh, that I'm making here is don't think that it cannot happen to you. Just because you love the Lord and you're having daily devotions with your, your, your children, don't think it can't happen to you. It happened to Gideon, Abdon, the son of Hillel, Samuel, and several other kings. And Eli was a man of faith just like they were. And we've got a, a number of hints of his love for the Lord and of his faith. Uh, you, you read his speech to his children where he's chewing them out, and you realize, hey, here's a guy who at least believes the Bible to be true. You also realize, uh, we didn't read it, but uh, the, the later uh, charges that God brought through Samuel to uh, Eli, that he has humility. He told Samuel, it is from the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So there seems to be a degree of humility there. There seems some faith. The very naming of his son Phineas seems to indicate that he had hopes for his son that he would turn out with the kind of faith and courage uh, that the great hero of the faith in Numbers chapter 25 had. So like um, uh, David, he had a lot of good things going, but he had these huge gaping holes in his theology of parenting and in his practice of parenting. And I want to look at seven gaping holes. First, like many modern parents that I know, Eli was quick to be critical of other people's sins, but somewhat blind to his own children's faults. And you will never have what it takes to restrain your children if you are like Eli in this regard. Uh, just as Scripture calls us to be harder on ourselves than we are on others in Matthew chapter 5, I believe you can apply that to the family. We should take the plank, the log, however you want to translate it, out of our families. I, uh, so that we can see more clearly to take the speck out of another family's uh, eye. But Eli did not do that, and I want to demonstrate that to you this morning. If you turn to chapter 1, I want you to notice uh, something. As Hannah pours out her heart in anguish to the Lord in prayer, this is uh, verses 12 through 14, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. We'll stop there for a moment. Uh, the Hebrew word for watched is shamar, and the dictionary defines it as to diligently guard or to exercise great care over. In other words, he was watching her like a hawk. He was being critical of her behavior. He was examining and analyzing her behavior. And if he had had the same watch care over his own children, uh, he might have been quicker to restrain his sons. Verse 13, Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. Of course she was not. Uh, but he rebukes her for her drunkenness. He doesn't ask, he assumes, he takes action based on that assumption. So he's quick to see sin, he's quick to rebuke sin and to restrain sin in others. But I want you to now take a look at how blind he was to his own son's sins 
in chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. Now I want you to notice that Eli does not notice this on his own. God himself says in verse 22, he had to hear it from others. And Eli admits that he's been so oblivious to what's going on. Uh, In verse 23, he says, For I hear of all your dealings, uh, excuse me, I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. And I find that phrase, from all the people, interesting for two reasons. Uh, First of all, it uh, shows that he was somewhat resistant to these reports from various people early on. Otherwise, he would have rebuked them a lot earlier. But it's only as there is an overwhelming number of people that are coming to him and there is a persistence in them coming to him that he finally chews them out, gets on their case. Um. So he's somewhat resistant to criticism. The second thing that this phrase shows is how long it took him to be convinced. If all the people have been reporting this behavior, that means that there has been a process of time. How many years has this been going on? So it's clear that for a long time he has been oblivious to their sins. And I think every one of you are aware of people, you probably even have relatives in this situation, who can be easily critical of other people's children are utterly blind to serious sin issues in their own life, uh, their own children's lives. In fact, they go to lunch at somebody's house and their kids are tearing up the place and they don't seem to notice. And you bring it to their attention, they look at you like you're being judgmental or something. I think every one of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've seen this. And if you are one of those fathers who doesn't tend to notice let me suggest that you make it a goal to watch your child's behavior on a daily basis, the Hebrew word shamar, to analyze what your children are doing. And the reason I say make it a goal, we men, we tend to be goal-oriented, and if there, there are not goals on our radar right at this particular moment, the other things just tend to slide on by us. Uh, we don't tend to notice them. Not all men are that way. Some men just are observant of everything. But I think a majority of men tend to be this way, and so it's critical that you make being observant a daily goal. Just a very, very simple step, but I think it's a critical one. Make it a goal to watch your children, to analyze their behavior. Many times we get so busy talking with somebody at church that we don't notice what our children do. And if you just make it a habit to occasionally uh, scan the auditorium to see where are my kids, and if they're doing anything bad, say, excuse me, I'll be right back, and you go and you deal uh, with your children. And uh, it's not just the mom's job. We need to be involved as fathers. Make it a practice to occasionally step back from a group discussion and make sure you know where your children are at, what they are doing and to exercise great care over your children. Put down the newspaper on occasion and see what's going on uh, in the home. And as you practice this, you'll reinforce this goal and you'll develop a habit. Anyway, this tendency toward blindness to our own sins and blindness to the sins of our family, it must be licked if we are to be successful in restraining the sins of, uh, of our children. Uh, You know, chapter 3, verse 13, I have told him 
that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. We, we've got to do this. And let me just tell you, give you a, a story to, to illustrate this. When I was going to seminary in California, uh, there was a woman who was very, very involved in the pro-life movement, and she was so busy that she really neglected her children. <clears throat> and one day, uh, her daughter uh, came to her, was pretty agitated, really, really wanted to talk to her mom. And uh, her mom was late for an appointment and said, I, I, I can't talk with you right now. Can we deal with this later? Well, she completely blew it off, forgot about it. And several uh, days later, she discovered that her daughter had been pregnant and wanted to talk to her mom and, uh, and was just really fearful, didn't know what to do. And because her mom had put her off and forgotten and because the dad was almost totally absent from the home, uh, she ended up getting an abortion. Now, here is the irony. Here is a woman who was so intent on restraining abortion in society that she was blind to abortion happening right within her home. It's exactly what was going on in Eli's life, what's being discussed here. And what I would say is this is even more true of fathers. I see it over and over again where fathers seem to be oblivious to the struggles and the sins that their kids are going on. In fact, I won't take a, a survey afterwards, but if I were to take a survey of some of you fathers and just ask you, what are several issues, struggles that your, each one of your children are going through, and what are the specific things that you are doing to help your children to deal with those I suspect you fathers would have a hard time coming up with a list. Why? Because there is no shamar in your life. There is no investigation. There is no diligently watching uh, the lives of your children. And it's, it's really an important point. A second major hole in Eli's parenting was that he tried to reason with his children rather than restraining his children. And this is a huge problem in modern fathering. Uh, and even in homeschool circles, you, you see this. Take a look at verse 23. And verse 23 says, Why do you do such things? Now, he's obviously disappointed with his children's behavior, and he's trying to convince them that this is wrong. But asking why a fool does folly is sort of like asking a circle why it is a circle or why it's round. Uh, Proverbs 14, verse 24 says, The foolishness of fools is folly. <laughs> you don't need to ask. You just need to recognize it, and you need to restrain it. You need to deal with it. To reason with such children and hope for something better will not work. Instead, the Scripture calls us to do two things. It calls, calls upon us to apply the Scripture prayerfully into that child's life and, and pray that God would take that Scripture, which is sharper than any two-edged sword as a means of grace in changing that child's life, and secondly, to restrain that behavior. Those are the two things that God uh, calls, us, <clears throat> calls us to do. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> God, <coughs> God did not hold Eli accountable for the unregenerate nature of, of his children's hearts. He held Eli accountable for failing to bring God's word to bear in those children's lives and for failing to restrain the sin in his children's lives with the rod of correction. And the rod of correction has exactly that goal. 
Proverbs 22, verse 15 promises, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. doesn't matter whether they're regenerate or unregenerate, the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Only God can change the heart, but fathers can do much in bringing the means of grace into those children's lives, and they can do much to use the rod to drive that folly far from them. And we already saw this was David's fault as well in 1 Kings chapter 1. He never brought pain into his children's lives. He protected them from pain. And if the same thing can be said of you, it will be a miracle if your children do not turn out just as badly as Phineas and Hophni. It will be a miracle of God's grace. So what do we do about it? How do we avoid this Eliism? One of the practical exercises that I encourage fathers to begin implementing in their home, if they've been lax in discipline, is to institute a boot camp for their children. And the boot camp is really designed to be training fathers and mothers uh, to be consistent in their own discipline as much as it is to develop good habits in the child. Now, you explain to the child that God wants them and has called them to be good soldiers of the cross, and every child, every soldier has to go to boot camp to learn disciplined behaviors and disciplined attitudes. And you can say something to this effect. The behavior and the attitudes of this family stink. Uh, they have really gone downhill, and I have failed to be a good leader in not demanding first-time obedience. Now, I've repented to God for this and asked His forgiveness. I want to ask your forgiveness for not having called you to account on your behavior. And we're going to fix that this morning. What I'm going to do today, tomorrow, and the next day, and as long as it takes until you get this perfect, is to institute boot camp. And during this boot camp, what we're going to do is I'm going to give arbitrary commands to you, and I'm going to give you uh, various types of homework, and I'm going to uh, instruct you to do things that you don't want to be doing, and we're going to uh, encourage you to obey immediately, cheerfully, and quickly. And if there is not immediate, cheerful, and quick uh, responses to my commands, there's going to be a whack with the discipline tool on your behind, followed by an opportunity to practice it again and again and again until you've got it down perfectly. Now let's stop and pray that God would make this a very successful boot camp. And after you've prayed, you explain the ground rules to them and what your expectations are in this boot camp. And you administer discipline for every infraction during this boot camp without exception. You don't say partway through this boot camp, Son, I told you to do such and such. That's second-time obedience. You're not wanting to reinforce second-time obedience. You're reinforcing first-time obedience, unquestioning obedience. During the first boot camp, there's going to be lots of tears. In fact, partway through that boot camp, you're probably going to have to break for uh, tea and cookies until they calm down a little bit because you're wanting to have cheerful obedience, not just crying obedience. And once they've Calm down. You say, okay, we're going to go back to boot camp. We're going to start this all over again. And, um, and uh, you just work at it, and you keep working at it. By the second boot camp, every child knows the routine. They usually hop right to it, and sometimes it becomes almost a game. 
But they learn the disciplines of doing things they don't want to do without question, without complaint, and with good expressions on their faces. And yes, you should discipline your child if he obeys with a scowl on his face. Okay, because you tell that child your facial expression is revealing a bad heart and we are not going to be putting up with this. And so here's the discipline for the scowl that's on your face. Let's try practicing this again with a good expression. Now let me tell you that there are many, many advantages uh, to having boot camp. First, it breaks the habit of reasoning with kids and arguing with them. In other words, it trains the parents as much as the kids into demanding first-time obedience. There are no warnings. There's a command that's either followed by praise and new exercises, or it's followed by discipline and the administration of Scripture. And there's reinforcement of behavior by having the child go back to the first spot and the circumstances where they disobeyed and say, let's try this all over again. You just didn't do it right. And if need be, it's repeated over and over and over again. So the first advantage is that it breaks the habit of arguing and reasoning with kids. You don't have to raise your voice. In fact, I strongly, strongly suggest you not raise your voice. That'd be the one difference between the army boot camp and the family boot camp. You're a father, not a sergeant, okay? And you just very calmly, without ever raising your voice, say, okay, it's another whack that you're going to be getting because uh, you didn't follow through on this. Second advantage is that when one child is being disciplined, the other children learn just by watching. It doesn't pay to disobey, so they learn by watching. The third advantage is you can cram training that might take months and even years to accomplish otherwise into two or three practice sessions that are uh, an hour or so in length. And I don't know any better way of practicing proper responses until they happen right. If you've got to wait for days and, and weeks, it's really hard to have the, the consistency to make it into a habit. Okay, the uh, fifth uh, benefit is that it is very intentional, and a parent is less likely to discipline out of anger or frustration. And even though there might only be outward conformity in the initial stages, as you persevere in Scripture-saturated and prayer-saturated boot camp, you're going to find very speedy and remarkable changes happening in your children. This is in part what Hebrews talks about, having constant practice, constant practice, constant practice. It's the only way that righteousness develops as a habit, is if there is constant practice. It works. And by the way, it's not going to work so well if mom's the only one who's doing this. Dad has got to set the tone in the household, and he's got to model for his wife how boot camp functions. Okay, now that brings to the third gaping hole in Eli's parenting, which is shown in verses 23 through 25. He blows up at the kids and yells at them. He vents his frustration, and interestingly, his kids ignore him. Why? Well, they know from experience that dad has more bark than bite, right? They're adults by now, and they've probably seen this many, many times uh, through their lifetime. They're probably thinking, you know what? Dad probably couldn't bear to see us out of office. I doubt he's going to do anything to us. We can just ignore him, and everything's going to be okay. So when Eli says, no, my sons, it's really meaningless. They've heard that no thousands of times in their lives, and it's never anything that they can't get around. A no did not mean no to Eli, at least not in terms of follow-through. And in case you think he couldn't follow through with his sons, because they're adult sons, 
Uh, in the next point, I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy 21 and showing that's absolutely uh, false. Uh, but here, I just want to emphasize that any time you dads demonstrate more bark than bite, you've already started the process of losing your children. Blowing up at your kids is a sure sign that you've lost the battle. It's a sure sign that, that you are weak and they are strong. Okay? It's a sure sign that you're neither in control of yourself nor in control of them. You cannot restrain evil in your children's hearts if they know the only time they have to take you seriously is when you get mad and yell. When that happens, eventually even your yelling will amount to nothing, as Eli experienced with his older children. The fourth gaping hole in Eli's theology of parenting was that they had become more important to him than God had. Now, if you told Eli that you thought that that was the case in his life, I'm sure he would have denied it. No, there is no way. God is far more important to me than, than my children are. But his works did not demonstrate that. Not at all. Uh, his, his works, his actions showed otherwise. The text says that he honored them and their desires more than he honored God and God's desires. So take a look at verse 29. God asks Eli, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Now, you might think, Eli didn't have much choice. These are grown men, but he did have a choice. He had the power to evict them from office. He had the power to turn them over to the civil magistrate for their crimes, and what they engaged in was crimes, uh, and to have them receive some kind of corporal punishment from the magistrate. Let me read you from Deuteronomy 21. This is probably the most controversial passage in, in the whole Bible that evangelicals say, no, 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 we don't believe in this. It says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, and it's talking about repeated chastening over time, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, it would have been very hard for Eli to do that because it would have been, first of all, an admission of the utter failure of his parenting. But secondly, parents, you know, they love their children. They don't want to see their, their children die. It's hard because parents want their children to respect them and to love them. But here's the interesting thing. In Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, it's repeated twice in the New Testament, Jesus upholds this law, and one that is even more rigid, that you should take that child of the civil magistrate if he is repeatedly, uh, you cannot break his habit of cursing you as a parent. Okay, Jesus upholds that, and he says that because the Pharisees refused to implement this law with their children, that they were honoring man more than they honored God. Okay, Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of his day of being just like Eli in their parenting. Now, hopefully, none of us would ever experience the time where we have to testify against our children in a civil court. But I bring that up to argue this way, from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus is saying that 
You must honor God more than your children on even a Deuteronomy 21 kind of a scenario. How much more so on the lesser things that happen way, way, way before that even happens? Um, It is not an honor to God when our children are disrespectful to other adults and we don't do anything about it. It is not uh, respectful, it is not an honor to God when our children are holy terrors at church. It's because fathers want their children to like them that they often refuse to restrain them. But I think what this passage is saying, we need to be more concerned about what God likes and what God thinks than by what our children like. And if we don't close that gaping hole in our parenting, it will become exceedingly hard to enforce a no by restraining our children. Now, related to this point E, Eli was overly driven by a desire to protect his children from harm. And even when he rebukes them, he does it to warn them hey, you better stop because otherwise you might receive God's severe judgment. Rather than viewing God's disciplines and his own disciplines as being a good thing, as being a training tool in their lives, he sees it as something to be avoided at all costs. And you do exactly the same things when you tell your children, you better quit doing that or you're going to get a spanking. What you're telling your children when you say that is that avoiding a spanking is more important than first-time obedience. It's exactly what you are telling your children. If your goal is to keep your children from getting spankings, you've already missed the heart of the matter. My own father went through such pain in his youth that he had as one of his unspoken goals to make sure that we kids did not have to go through similar pains. I don't think it was a good idea. I don't think it was a good philosophy uh, to, to do that. Our children need to learn how to become soldiers of the cross as well. They too need to be taught how to pick up their cross daily and follow Christ even when that cross is uncomfortable. Uh, they too are commanded to deny themselves for Christ's sake. And so we need to ask ourselves, fathers, does my parenting reflect the fundamental truth of Christ that without picking up our cross, denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, we can't even be Christ's disciples. Our parenting can reflect the exact opposite if all we're trying to do is uh, make sure that our children avoid all discipline and discomfort. If you've got that, you've got a hidden motivation that will destroy consistency in restraining evil. Point F, uh, though for the most part Eli was godly, he did model some evil to his children. And what they did is they picked it up and they amplified uh, his evil. Uh, By the way, I should point out too that because Eli was a kind of a substitute parent, he was like an adoptive father for Samuel, Samuel, without even thinking about it, picked up a lot of the bad habits that Eli had. And if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll see that Samuel had the same permissive parenting of Eli, and his kids turned out terrible, so terrible, that the Israelites impeached them. They kicked them out of office. It must have gotten really, really bad. But it all started with Eli. In verse 35, Eli was said to not be totally faithful in his priestly duties. A little bit of compromise there. In verse 29, we see that Eli modeled taking more than his fair share of the sacrifices, modeled indulgence, modeled, if it tastes good, I'm going to eat it, 
doesn't matter what people say, even though that God says, that the Scripture says that all the fat goes to God. Uh, I like it, so I'm going to eat it. And uh, verse 16 rebukes the sons for eating the fat that should have been given to God, but where did they learn it? It wasn't just them. Look at verse 29. God rebukes Eli, saying, to make yourselves fat. He's talking to Eli. He's including Eli. He says, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. They were all fat. Now, the picture in your outline doesn't really show uh, them to be uh, fat, but if you look at chapter 4, verse 18, it says that Eli was exceedingly fat. (laughs) He was a big, a big guy, and God says it wasn't a hormone thing. It was a making themselves fat thing, okay? So Eli had a hard time restraining indulgence in his sons because they could see indulgence in his life. He had a hard time restraining theft, which they amplified, because he kind of fudged on those areas and took things that God said weren't his to take. He had a hard time restraining compromises in his sons because he had some compromises in his lives. In fact, I've seen... I've seen Christian parents, it just shocks me when I, every, every time I hear this, I've seen Christian parents who justify the fornication that their kids are doing in their dating by saying, well, I know it's not good, but you know, we did that when we were younger and it didn't turn out so bad. If we don't deal with the character issues in our own lives, fathers and mothers, we're going to have a very hard time restraining those same character issues in our children's lives. It's a big gaping hole in Eli's fatherhood. Okay, the uh, last thing that I want to highlight was that Eli failed to be God-centered in his parenting. As part of God's judgment on Eli, God says in verse 35, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever." Now, there's two phrases there that I think point to this God-centered living. The last phrase, that he shall walk before my anointed forever, I don't think is primarily looking at David, though there's probably some aspect there, but ultimately it's a messianic reference, walking before Christ. So it's kind of an expression like quorum Deo, living our lives before the face of God. And the other expression, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, also shows a God-centered focus. Now, Eli does show that he really he wants to please God, he wants to serve God, but because his mind was so focused on earthly things, he had a hard time being driven by God's desires. And the more difficult the task, such as discipline, it's a hard thing to do, the more difficult the task, the less likely he was to be driven in a God-centered way. And the only remedy for this is given in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now that's hard, but it's absolutely essential if we're to have a Christ-centered focus on parenting. It's only as we abide in the vine that fruit will come forth to His glory. So He says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, 
fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now, Satan will try to do everything he can to distract us from Christ because he knows if we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not walking in the Spirit, we're going to be powerless in our parenting. We're going to be powerless in absolutely everything that we do. And so he'll distract you emotionally by making you so tired that when you get home, you just want to plop into a sofa and surf the TV. You don't have the energy emotionally to deal with your family issues. I'll let my wife deal with that, okay? Or he will try to distract you spiritually by making you too busy to pray with your wife or with your children or to read the Bible or to read good, solid books. He will try to uh, make, uh, distract you physically by making you so busy that you are a, 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 a distant dad like, uh, like Eli. You know, Eli, one of the things that could have happened was he was so busy in ministry that he maybe didn't have time to, to spend uh, with his kids. Or he might do it through tiredness or distract you through overcommitment to ministry outside the home. But I would urge you to fight every distraction and to put off these seven Eliisms that are keeping you from restraining the foolishness that is bound up in your heart. And as you practice these seven things, putting them on, may the Lord prosper your fathering. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it steps on our toes, because we know it's for our good. And we desire, Father, that our lives would more and more conform to you. Please forgive us for those times where we have failed to restrain the evil and the foolishness that is bound up in the hearts of our children. Uh, please help us to, uh, with our whole heart, uh, pursue after you and to treat our children as a stewardship trust that we ought. We love you and we want to love you more. We serve you and we want to serve you more faithfully. And so we pray for your anointing, your grace, your encouragement for each father here uh, as they seek uh, to improve their serve. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.